Not until Candace sat up and said, I want my $900,000, I need it, as did the co-investor, that bang, everything unraveled at that point. I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. So... Everyone who works in the New York art world knows Lisa Schiff, an art advisor to the rich and famous who worked with Leonardo DiCaprio for years. She was a highly visible presence at art fairs, on museum boards, and generally around town, running her glamorous boutique firm from a first-floor gallery space in Tribeca, whose entry wall was covered with a memorable floor-to-ceiling plant installation. So media-savvy that she had a PR firm on retainer, she was frequently quoted as an expert in the art press, and she had long-standing relationships with journalists in town, including here at Artnet News, where she even wrote an op-ed last summer on the scourge of quote-unquote meme art. That's why it came as such a shock to a lot of us this past May when a lawsuit dropped accusing her of essentially using her advisory firm to run a pretty extravagant Ponzi scheme. So, what exactly happened with Lisa Schiff? What is she accused of doing, and where do things stand today? I'm very pleased to be joined on the show today by Artnet News's ace art market reporter, Eileen Kinsella, to find out. Hi, Eileen. Thanks so much for coming back on The Art Angle. Great to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the events of the past couple of weeks, can you start by telling us your experience with Lisa Schiff? How did you understand her place in the art world? What was your own relationship with her like? I met her probably close to a decade ago, and just was instantly impressed and intrigued by her. Everything from her knowledge of individual artists' markets to, at the time, I remember she was reading that book by Thomas Piketty that was all the rage. Her knowledge of the art world and the art market seemed to be just so in-depth, and she was sophisticated. She was knowledgeable. She was also outspoken. I also really appreciated that about her. Like talking to her was always kind of fun. You know, she'd throw in a really direct, honest opinion about something. Sometimes she'd say, keep that off the record or whatever. But it always informed the story that I was working on, you know, whether it was a market profile of Richard Prince or Damien Hirst. She always kind of gave it to me straight and gave me great insight and just seemed also just like a very fun, interesting person on top of it. And she was pretty much an A-level player. Would you agree? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I know she'd been an advisor, I think, for about 20 years. But when I first met her, I remember it was kind of always known and talked about that she was advising Leonardo DiCaprio. That wasn't the case later on, but that was always something people associated her with. She also seemed very plugged into the L.A. scene, like especially when it was kind of coming up kind of again, like the resurgence of the L.A. galleries in like 2014, 2015. I remember going out to L.A. and just saying, like, hey, who should I talk to out here? You know, before even the Marciano Foundation, she just, like, rattled off a list of, like, talk to this gallerist, talk to that gallerist. She was very plugged in, and she did maintain an apartment in L.A. and had a real presence out there, as well as New York. So now, of course, reputation has changed pretty dramatically. When did you first hear that something was up with Lisa? And how did those events unfold? Well, I had a phone call from somebody who said, I have to talk to you and it's urgent. And I was in the middle of two other stories, but of course took the call and they said there is a uh, major lawsuit that's about to drop against Lisa Schiff. And, you know, my first reaction was shock. I have covered a number of lawsuits and a fair amount of wrongdoing in the art world, but I felt like I had just a great relationship with Lisa and liked her a lot and thought of her as a very like 
honest, above board, successful person. So I was shocked and I was kind of like, oh man, like I'm going to have to break this and I feel a little weird about it. So I got a copy of the lawsuit and it was really a bombshell. Like what was alleged in there was just shocking. Acting on behalf of her clients who she was really close to, she had secured a major Adrian Gagné painting. Adrian Gagné is a very sought-after Romanian painter. His prices have really been on the rise in recent years. He sold for as much as $10 million at auction. So what was alleged in the lawsuit was that she said to these clients of hers, hey, let me acquire this on your behalf. You have 50% ownership. I will flip it for a profit, which she did. I don't know the original purchase price, but I know that the price she sold it for was $2.5 million, which is a pretty decent return. It seemed like it was for whoever her investors were. And their allegation was that after waiting months and being kind of dragged around and the delay in payments, that she finally came clean and said, I was paid, but I don't have the money and kind of walked away and said, talk to my lawyer. And from there, they were shocked and they proceeded to contact their own lawyer and bring a suit against her. And even though they focused on the fact that the Genya painting the money owed was not being paid, they also broadened out into this much bigger web that they were the ones that labeled the Ponzi scheme and also included, because they're close to her, very intense details about her personal spending. Well, so first of all, who are the plaintiffs? The plaintiffs are Candace Brash. She's a real estate heiress. And the two of them, over the course of 20 years, became very close friends. The lawsuit says that they talked every day, multiple times a day. She had been advising her and finding good deals on paintings for a long time and helping her build her collection. The other collector was not somebody I was really familiar with before the case, but his name is Richard Grossman. And so Candace Barash was a 50% owner. And then Richard Grossman and a person identified only as Richard Grossman's spouse, remaining anonymous, were the other half of the ownership. And the core accusation is that Lisa Schiff bought on their behalf this Adrian Genny painting and then flipped it by reselling it at, I think, Sotheby's Hong Kong. Is that right? Sotheby's Hong Kong. And I don't believe it's public because if it was auctioned, we would have had an auction record. So it must have been a private sale. Okay. So she flipped it through there. She got the money. But then when they came to collect their part of it, it was gone. Well, actually, that's not true. What's laid out in the lawsuit is that she paid out an initial $450,000 split between the two investment side. So she did give some money. She gave $450,000, took a 10% commission, which was $250,000 for herself. And then they were owed a total of $1.8 million. So $900,000 for each investment half. And that's the money that's missing. That's what they didn't get paid. Okay. So this is the central accusation. But as you said, it expands into this broader web of accusations where they lay out this kind of decadent lifestyle, living beyond her means. What do they say? How is that relevant? I mean, it's relevant, but it also got so personal. And it's the kind of personal detail that only somebody who knew her well and traveled with her all the time, as Candace Barash said she did. She observed her going on buying sprees in Paris at Loewe, very high-end clothing store, spending tens of thousands of dollars on jewelry, an apartment in Tribeca at the famous Jenga building that cost something like $25,000 a month, and also sending her son to a very pricey private school for $60,000 a year. And I guess one could argue, is that getting too personal or is that showing I've seen her doing some things that don't add up and this is the basis for why money is missing? I mean, I guess you could parse that. So they're kind of insinuating that 
she didn't have the money to pay them back because she was using their money to pay for these various expenses. Correct. Correct. Okay. So how unusual is this Guinea deal that's at the heart of the lawsuit? How unusual is it to buy something with two collectors backing you and then flip it so quickly via an auction house in a private sale in Hong Kong? Is this like an unusual thing or is this kind of par for the course? I think it's par for the course at upper echelons of the art market. Not everybody has, you know, a spare million that they could hand to an advisor and say like, here it is, go buy the painting. When you flip it for a profit, give me my money back and more. And it's also, if you look at the hold of the painting, it was bought sometime in spring of 2021, and then she resold it through Sotheby's Hong Kong in 2022. Because I don't have the initial purchase price, I don't know the exact profit that was made, but I guess it's classic flipping, which, well, it is happening all the time in certain circles of the art world. You have to have a lot of money to be able to play like that. And it seemed like she had gotten into the position where she was able to tell people, hey, I'll get this for you. You know, you agree to it. I don't even know how she got the painting because it was painted in 2019 and it was shown at the Hermitage in Russia. I believe it was shown through like today's Ropak Gallery, but you don't normally have the sale of a painting going straight from a museum or an artist's studio to a client. It's usually shown at a gallery first on the primary market. So I'm kind of intrigued about how she even got her hands on it in the first place. His paintings are really hard to get. So the fact that she was able to secure one like that is really incredible. Hmm. So it sounds like there's more to the story that will unfold over time. But so after this original lawsuit drops, a week passes, and then a second lawsuit drops, which kind of really thickens the plot. What happens in the second lawsuit? So the second lawsuit, and again, it was filed by Candace Barash, her husband, and maybe some of her children. There's trusts associated with it, which I'm sure is like to secure for your children going forward. But the main thrust of the second lawsuit is kind of opening the floodgates. It's sort of recapping, hey, we didn't get our money on this Adrian Genye. Now I found out by talking to individual galleries that I've called up and that art ostensibly that I owned or shelled out hundreds of thousands of dollars for, it either hasn't been paid for or it's only been partially paid for or it's been paid and it's in storage on Lisa Schiff's name. And it was a very detailed list of some of like the most buzzy artists today, both contemporary and historic. One was uh, Ernie Barnes. Another was Alvaro Barrington, Wanjechi Mutu, Lauren Halsey, Lewis Hammond, Anika Yee. And then also like a very intense roster of blue chip gallery names, like they're mentioned as having purchased or Candace believed that Lisa was purchasing art for her from galleries, including Gladstone, Pace, Nino Meyer, Journal Gallery, and Pilar Carius. And it lays out in extraordinary detail, like, for instance, I'll buy you this Wanjechi Mutu sculpture. And Mutu is a very famous artist who was featured on the facade of the Metropolitan in recent years. And this was one of the sculptures from that series. It was $650,000. So when Candace goes like, oh, my Genye money is missing. I better go to Gladstone and find out where my Mutu sculpture is. They say, well, it has a balance of $250,000 and you can't have it because it hasn't been paid for. And that scenario played out over, I think I counted something like, anywhere between a dozen and 14 transactions that were of that nature, where it was no payment or partial payment. And Candace was now finding out she doesn't own these things she believes she owned. So basically, she files the first lawsuit saying this Adrian Genny painting, let's resolve the problem about the Adrian Genny painting. Then after that, she starts investigating if there's anything else that's wrong. And in her investigation, she comes up with 
a towering amount of evidence that says that Lisa Schiff has basically been deceiving her for a yes. long period of time with these purchases. But one thing that I'm a little unclear on is if she's buying all these artworks and Lisa Schiff is only partially paying for them, there are balances that are remaining on them, that means that Candace Parash is not actually receiving these artworks. Is that the case? I just think there was a lot of shuffling of money going on where sometimes it would be like, I got you this painting and I'll pay with some of the proceeds of the other thing that I sold for you. Like there was a lot of trust that Candace had invested in her. But mainly she just never picked up the actual art. The art that she was buying was not like decorating her house. It was just right. like kind of stored in these galleries in various places. And she trusted Lisa Schiff that she was the owner of these artworks and that she had this financial control over those artworks and was part of this web of being able to move assets from one place to another to flip this thing without actually taking possession of the art and like displaying it in some kind of mansion as people might expect a collector to do. Yeah. Andrew, that's an excellent point because I think what that speaks to is that, okay, if you have a high profile art advisor like Lisa Schiff, you're relying on her to identify opportunities for you. So if she tells you, I can get this, you know, Mutu sculpture right now, it's available. And you say, oh, great, because I know that's a good investment. Maybe you're not as concerned about putting it on display in your house right away as you are about securing it. And I think that's a key part of the client art advisor relationship is the access that somebody is representing to you that they can get because of their ties as a high profile advisor. And so clearly there was a lot of trust that was built into this relationship. And I think that the lawsuit lays out the contours of the relationship between Lisa Schiff and Candace Brosh in a way that is pretty devastating from yeah. one perspective. What do we learn about the relationship? That they'd been friends for 20 years that I mentioned before, but they talked every day, multiple times a day, according to the lawsuit. They traveled together, which is why Candace seems to have an insight into Lisa's spending habits and was characterizing them as lavish. Somebody told me that they were at some event in Miami for some art advisor thing very shortly before the lawsuit, and they were going through a tour of Candace's collection and practically finishing each other's sentences. Like, that's how close they were. And the access outlined in the suit includes access to her credit cards, whether or not Lisa was controlling storage accounts at warehouses that Candace had, she certainly was able to say, hey, I have my storage account at XYZ in Delaware. I'll put that painting there, which is what she did with the Genie before she was sending it to Hong Kong, storing it for her. She pretty much had free reign. Is this established fact or are these the accusations being laid out in the suit? That's what's outlined in the suit. I have to believe that if Candace is saying this person had access to my credit cards, that that's a very easily provable fact. And that's coming from the person who allowed the financial control. I also understand that sometimes the methodology of the payment, like for instance, the sculpture was, I can get this for $650,000, write me a check. So Candace writes a $650,000 check to Lisa. So how unusual is this kind of relationship between a collector and their advisor? You know, I'm not sure how it always works. I know that anonymity is often a big point of interest for clients. So maybe the selling point on that is write the personal check to me so that I'm buying it for you. I'm the advisor. I have the access. I don't know if all relationships work like that, but theirs did. They were extraordinarily close as friends. So I don't know if that's the exception or the rule, but it was certainly something that allowed this kind of alleged wrongdoing to happen. 
And you could just imagine that if they have this relationship for 20 years, they're working together so closely in this incredible relationship of trust that there must have been a lot of success along the way to let this kind of relationship continue to entrench at this extent that Lisa Schiff has access to her credit cards and her bank accounts. Yeah. And an important thing to note, which speaks directly to that point, is in one of the responses to the lawsuits, when Lisa Schiff's own attorney is going over the relationship of the years, he points out that Lisa made some estimated $10 million for Candace over the course of the years with all the art that she bought and sold for her, that there was a plus side profit of $10 million. And so this was definitely a speculative investment relationship. This was not For sure. I'm going to collect this from my house, bequeath it to my family, then give it to a museum. This was really about using art as an alternative asset class to flip and profit from. For sure. Which isn't to say that Candace doesn't have a collection because I understand that she does. It's just that, as you (laughs) rightly point out, with these dozen or so deals that I've gone over where she's out these paintings and doesn't technically own them, clearly she wasn't following completely through and saying like, oh, I'll take that Ernie Barnes painting that you bought for me. Like, let me have it now. Okay. So 20 years of a relationship, $10 million made for her in terms of profit from art speculation. And then all of a sudden things get to this very messy point. How does it appear that everything started to unravel for Schiff? When did this all fall apart? There's some retrospective views in the suits, which indicates that there had been trouble brewing for a while. It does outline that at the start of the pandemic, the allegation is that she had been considering declaring bankruptcy, and then she didn't because she feared a criminal investigation, and that she also went into rehab. And I asked what the rehab was for, and I was told it was alcohol addiction. So I think there had been numerous attempts at some form of reorganization, and I've been told about financial arrangements where people tried to help her out. And I think it's one of those things that happens where maybe she thought she could get out of it and the hole just kept getting deeper and deeper. That's what it seems like. And that the tipping point was this Gagne and not being able to pay it back. There is an allegation that she moved funds around and was paying off other people. So it's like not until Candace sat up and said, I want my $900,000. I need it, as did the co-investor, that bang, everything unraveled at that point. So she's accused of running a Ponzi scheme. That's the accusation in that first lawsuit. So can you refresh our memory on what a Ponzi scheme is and how this fits that description? Yeah, it's when you take in money and represent to people that you're investing it, just keep taking in more money and then paying out the older claims. And eventually it collapses because you have to just be always taking in more money than you're paying out. You know, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Like the Ponzi scheme allegation in the first lawsuit is certainly something very catchy. It definitely caught everybody's attention. I don't know that it operated like a classic Ponzi scheme where she was just continually courting new investors, but she certainly was taking in money and not necessarily being truthful about where it went. And now in retrospect, I mean, you had a long relationship with her. She's very much a known quantity. Are there any red flags that you can think of from your experience with her over the years that may have indicated that something fast and loose like this may have been going on? No, not really. Like a lot of art advisors don't run public gallery spaces. So 
When she told me she was opening a space in Tribeca, I thought it was unusual, but I also took it as a sign of her continued success as an advisor. Like I was talking to her about why she thought it was a good idea. And she just talked about people kind of stopping by and hanging out in the space. And then she started organizing shows by artists. And obviously, we know that rent in Tribeca is not cheap. So I just took it as a sign that she was doing well. And she also maintained an apartment in Tribeca, which, you know, the so-called Jenga building is not a cheap spot. It's very high profile in New York City. So I didn't take it as a red flag. I took it as a sign that, wow, she's doing well. She's killing it. I mean, you must imagine that at some point in her long strings of of real and, and verifiable successes that she could have stopped and she could have kind of gotten a handle on her finances. You, you would imagine that, but it sounds as yeah. if she kept on making big investments, taking on big expenses, always kind of having to chase after the bills that she had to pay. Is that kind of what yeah. the picture that's emerging? I would say that's an accurate picture. And actually, though, to mention one thing, which Candace has brought up in her lawsuit, there was a point when David Kordansky Gallery called about paintings that had not been paid for in full. And in the context of Red Flex, you know, she went to Lisa and said, hey, what's going on? Kordansky said he hasn't been paid, and I know I paid for this in full. And she just kind of dismissed it as an accounting error, had said like, oh, we're so busy, we'll check it, just brushed it off. And maybe if Candace had pursued that right at that moment, she would have unraveled the fraud months earlier or a year earlier. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Okay, so to step back a bit, this whole imbroglio seems incredibly reminiscent of another major art market scandal that you really led the coverage on a few years back, which is the saga of the disgraced art dealer Inigo Philbrick. So can you remind us what he did and how these cases are similar? They're similar in terms of betting on a rising market, taking a particular artist and saying their star is just going to keep rising, the value of their paintings is going to go up, and I'm going to make a gamble on that. Grabbing somebody and saying, hey, I've got this amazing Rudolph Stingle. It's worth $6 million. I'll sell you half. I'll sell somebody else half. We'll sell it at auction. It'll make $10 million. And then, you know, you'll get your respective profit on your investment. So what happened with the Adrian Genye as it's laid out, I have to assume that was happening a lot, like with a lot of deals that she was bringing to Candace and others. It's always risky. You can't just know that something is going to keep going up. And even if it does, you don't take the money and run with it. You need to pay out the investor who you promised it to. So in terms of flipping art and speculation, the cases are very, very similar. Okay. So how are they different? The main difference that I see right now is that Inigo fled the country. The first day that a lawsuit was served, shortly after that, he just picked up and left the country. He didn't stay around to respond to any of the processes that were happening. And what happened there was lawsuits just kept coming out, like more and more people kept coming out of the woodwork saying, I was scammed too. I was told I own this. I don't own it. It might be in storage. It might be sold to somebody else. He was eventually captured on an island in the South Pacific and brought back here and sent to jail. He's still in prison serving his term. Lisa, on the other hand, I haven't spoken to her and I haven't communicated with her, but she hasn't fled. She went to the initial steps of a bankruptcy filing to reorganize her assets, and a trustee has been appointed, which is what happens in a bankruptcy reorganization. And she also, as I understand it, 
self-reported herself to authorities because she's probably anticipating like when they see this media coverage and these lawsuits about moving money around with wires and not paying your investors and people being out millions of dollars, it's reasonable to assume that a criminal investigation is coming down the pike. But rather than run from that, she has, I'm told, self-reported herself to authorities and has also retained criminal defense attorneys as well as civil attorneys. So you mentioned with Inigo Philbrick that after the first couple of lawsuits hit and, you know, his working methods uh, started getting publicized, a lot more lawsuits came down the pipe. Right, right. That's not something we've seen yet with Lisa Schiff. Is that right? Yeah, great point, Andrew, because I expected that, especially after the proximity of the two Barash lawsuits. I thought, oh, it's going to open the floodgates. You know, if I check the legal docket, I'm going to see this person wants their painting, this person wants their sculpture. One thing I know for sure, an attorney who has represented victims in some of these cases told me people are nervously calling warehouses all over the United States and Europe, be it Wovo or Crozier or any of these places that store fine art and trying to ascertain where their art is at and to the extent that they may have shelled out money, they want to know where the title is. But I think that in the short term, the move for a bankruptcy reorganization, which will sort out priority of ownership and claims, may help resolve some of those claims. And that may be why we haven't seen a flood of lawsuits yet. Inigo never declared bankruptcy. He just left the country, leaving everybody in a mess fighting over assets and saying, that's mine, that's mine. I'm owed a million or, or what. That has not yet happened with Lisa. And so we have the perspective of the plaintiffs. We have their complaints laid out in great detail. What have we heard from Lisa Schiff herself? She has not commented at all. I have not been able to reach her. I did say that I hoped one day I'd hear her side of the story. I haven't heard anything from her yet. She hasn't addressed the lawsuits in a legal forum? Actually, she has, because one of the things that Candace Barash and Richard Grossman were seeking was like a restraining order on her finances so that she can't get into her bank accounts or do anything else and move other things around. But Lisa's lawyer has argued that that will hamper the process of trying to sort out assets. Like if everything's frozen and she can't help cooperate and figure things out, they argued that that will be detrimental to the whole process. And the court in part agreed with that. They granted, I think it was a motion, but it was in Lisa's favor so that she can at least continue to move forward with the trustee and try to sort things out. So the next thing that will happen will be some form of a response in like mid-July. It sounds as if these accusations are out here. We haven't heard Lisa Schiff's response, but what seems to be painted in these lawsuits is a relationship between a client and an art advisor where there's so much trust that there's no due diligence on the purchases. That you say, buy this painting for me, you trust that the person buys a painting, you give them money, you trust that the money has been paid, but there's no scrutiny. It's an environment of almost careless amounts of trust. Mm -hmm. So will the art world ever learn about performing this kind of due diligence in terms of these sometimes multi-million dollar transactions. I think in cases where people who are such close friends, like there was probably such fluidity between their personal and their business relationship. So I'd like to think that that was the exception, but I think not in cases where people know each other and are art world veterans and think, as I said I did about Lisa, like she's an upstanding, successful, great advisor. Why would I have reason to doubt her? I think where it may come into play about people being more careful is if you're working with somebody entirely new that you've never dealt with in your life, if they ask you for $6 million, you might say like, 
let me sign the order that says it's going to go to my account at Wobo, not be kept in your name. I think it'll make people paranoid, but again, in cases where people are really close friends and just freely exchanging these kinds of sums of money, it it will happen again. It's just a matter of time. So tell me about Adam Sheffer. How does he fit into this story? When I was reading through the first complaint, it was mystifying to me that the second half of the other investor was just being referred to as Richard Grossman's spouse. And I was thinking, I have no idea who that is. And then somebody pointed out to me that his spouse is Adam Sheffer and that Adam Sheffer simultaneously served as a veteran art world person, former president of the Art Dealers Association of America, as an expert witness in a nearly identical case related to Inigo Philbrick. And he's calling people out for not doing their due diligence, not staking their ownership claim in a painting with the UCC, letting the painting out of your control, letting somebody else store it at their account. And it's ironic, beyond shocking, because it's everything that he and his partner are accusing Lisa Schiff of doing in their lawsuit and doing it while trying to remain anonymous as a very high-profile art world person. So I found that stunning. And I found it also stunning, the optics of it, that people wouldn't think we would put that together. I mean, I did a Patrick McMullen search, and there's pictures of them at the Art Dealers Association of America opening night party, or Richard Grossman gave an interview to a magazine about how much they love their apartment in the West Village and publicly identified his spouse as Adam Sheffer. So this is kind of embarrassing because this is not only a collector who should have known better. Right. This is a collector who actually did know better, so much so that they testified (laughs) about (laughs) the pitfalls of this kind of behavior in court. Yeah, publicly identifying himself in a case where he's criticizing people for not doing what he didn't do in a case where he's trying to remain anonymous. It's just like brings it all full circle for me. (laughs) Have have you spoken to him by any chance? No, he has not responded to any of my questions. And, you know, I'm aware that it was a delicate issue. So when I was talking with my editor about, hey, you know, I learned this information, I need to go to him and let him know that I know he's the plaintiff in this one case. And I see you're an expert witness in another for the exact same matter. How does that play out? I was very direct about this is what my story is going to say, and I never heard anything back. It sounds like this is kind of round one of the story. We've got the accusations. Lisa Schiff is probably readying her defense. She's entered into bankruptcy proceedings. What lies ahead? What are the next steps? I feel like there's going to be a lot more to come out. I'm hearing whispers that there's a lot more of Candace's art that is missing and unaccounted for that hasn't been publicly identified yet. And what I heard about people nervously calling art storage warehouses all over the country and the world also speaks to the fact that people are kind of trying to get a sense of what happens before they proceed. And there'll be two processes of sorting things out. One will be the bankruptcy. I learned with Salander, and I have a feeling that it will be a similar case here. There is like a hierarchy of people like if you consigned your work to his gallery and he sold it out from under you, maybe you're higher on the uh, food chain than somebody who just said, oh, can you store this for me? And he sold it out from under you. So having gone through that very complicated bankruptcy that lasted for months and months and still has implications now, I expect something similar will happen with Lisa. I mean, it seems for certain that there's more liabilities than assets. It'll be interesting to see who gets hierarchy, who gets their work or their money back. And then perhaps whatever doesn't get sorted out with a bankruptcy reorganization will be more lawsuits in the same vein as Candace's. 
I mean, how bad could this be for Lisa from a criminal standpoint? Does she have any kind of similar legal peril as Inigo Philbrick did? I mean, he initially pleaded not guilty, and then he pleaded guilty. And so I never got to know what his defense might have been. Like, there were whispers in the art world where it's sort of like, you can't have this without complicit people. Like, you can't have this without people cooperating with you and helping you. And I feel like that's been sort of an anecdotal defense from Inigo based on what I heard along the way. Like, he couldn't have just pulled all this off by himself. So I don't know what kind of a defense Lisa will mount. But it could be along those lines. And maybe because addiction was mentioned, perhaps that will be a defense. I'm not saying that it will be like a valid one or that it will get her off, but she's in trouble. She's definitely in trouble. And I would be very surprised if authorities didn't move forward with something. I mean, maybe she'll get some kind of leniency because she stepped forward. She didn't make them come after her. And as I said, she like self-reported like this is what happened, my financial circumstances. But as much as there was a defense in Inigo's case, it was sort of like people saying, well, you can't pull this off on your own. You have to have people that are complicit. So it's not all my fault. (laughs) That's like the layman's definition of the defense. Well, it sounds like this story is going to continue for quite a while. And it's going to have a lot of unfolding chapters that I'm sure you're going to be covering very closely. So people should continue to follow your reporting on this. Thank you very much, Eileen. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fascinating to discuss. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Malley, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.